First, you must realize that you have no idea before you can know the idea. We scan across all the frequencies if we want to learn anything new. Let us begin. What has physics done for me lately? Furthermore, the equation E is equal we have now acquired a fateful power to alter and to destroy nature. That's like when you're in physics and you get a dream about saying, oh, this is a physics excursion. What is it all about? The whole of human history all falls in the dust of one stroke of the nail file. You can't really get to grips with evolution unless you realize uh, what an enormous amount of time. Our own planet is only a tiny part of the vast cosmic tapestry, a starry fabric of worlds yet untold. Good morning. You tuned into what can only be described as the best radio station on this blue dot we call the planet Earth. It is, of course, for Triple Z, be it on your conventional wireless radio by tuning into the classic frequency of 102.1 FM. Digital devices such as DAB or smart speaker listening via the Community Radio Plus app or streaming us live from our sensational website at 4zzz.org.au. And, of course, you can always listen back to us or any 4ZZ show, for that matter, using an ingenious on-demand feature also found at that URL. We also have a podcast now, so you need to search for our show name, which is No Idea, spelt with a K, your weekly dose of science. And joining me today... To speak all things science is one of my favourite science communicators. It's the master. Good morning, Gabriel. Good morning, Max. We're, we're having a problem with this K thing, aren't we? We are. In the, in the Kano idea. you got to we, turn your levels up a bit. We um, needed, we, we're, with the podcast, yep. we've been asked to tell people about the podcast, do a little ad spot on 4ZZZ. Oh, yes, yeah. uh, and, and we keep going back and forth on how to, how to tell people that to, you have to search Kano idea, not Kano <laughs> yeah, sure. idea. Yeah. yeah. We, we really miss the, miss the mark with the, <laughs> with the visual pun. Speak for with yourself. Our radio name. <laughs> no idea. Oh, uh, Max, I've pun. got some good stuff coming up. I've got some yeah. science on the scariest predator in the savannah. I've got some science on a, a potential sixth taste that we might have and have had our whole lives. Oh, yeah, and, I read and, that and too, and yeah. <laughs> may now be in the first stages of being adopted into the formal halls of scientific, scientifically acknowledged tastes that humans have. Yes. We'll get into all of that and marine science and space science and motor apps and all that sort of stuff. Talking science, but mm. Max, let's I think it's a bit of time to do a bit of this. Do you want to take a stab, Max, at what the five human tastes are? Uh, sour, sweet, uh, yep. um, uh, not sa- sour, not sweet. I don't know. That's all I've got. So, sour, sweet. Yeah. Salt. Salty, yeah. Bitter. Yeah. Surely you've got the fifth one. Uh, I don't know. No. Mushroom. <laughs> what was what was it? Um, umami. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Umami, said, yeah, okay. umami mushroomy flavor. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Sweet, salty, sour, and bitter. That was it up until the eighties. It was just those four. Then in the eighties, the scientific community formally adopted umami, which made it officially five tastes. Unofficially, right. though, it might now be six because yeah. researchers from the University of Southern California, Max, which has a QS ranking of would be two hundred and thirty-eight. One hundred and sixteen, right on the money, have published <laughs> evidence for a brand new sixth taste. Do you want to take a crack at what that's called? No, no I should have reread this article. <laughs> <laughs> Ammonium chloride. Oh, is the yes. Taste. Ammonia. Yeah. Uh, if you're from a Scandinavian country, you may be familiar, or if you have a friend who brings you goodie bags from a Scandinavian country, you mm. may be familiar with the taste of salt licorice. The salmiac, I believe it's called, I may be buggering that up, mm. uh, is. Uh, it's it's a salt in that um, salt licorice mm. that is ammonium chloride, and that is the possible sixth scent of taste. There if, like me, you haven't eaten what I'm told is a very strange sensation of your first salt licorice bite, um, <laughs> tough because I can't find much to compare it to. Yeah, that's right, exactly. <laughs> um, yeah. But the best description I found, I found two. Yeah. One was from a 2008 article in Wired, uh, which said it tastes like window cleaner. 
ammonium chloride. And then I I found a 2013 BBC article which described the sensation of eating the salt licorice. And the salt in that licorice is this ammonium chloride. Mm. Uh, And they said, within seconds of putting one in my mouth, an intense, sharp, stinging pain spread across my tongue as if somebody had sandpapered it and then poured salt on top. (laughs) After the pain came the salty sourness and I could not stop salivating. I had to spit it out. So that's what you, you're missing out on if you haven't had any Scandinavian salt licorice. Yes. Um, but you, you do have the ability to have that taste is what this new research has found. Um, if, if you have any ammonium-based products um, in your house, don't go huffing them. No. But if you are using them, that's mm. probably the closest smell that exists in your house to what this taste of, of ammonium chloride is. Um, it was a yeah something that we've known about for decades that humans could taste yeah obviously because mm. people have been eating it and going this is different to other things um, but there was a missing piece in that no one had found the receptors for ammonium chloride On you can't time. call yeah. it an official taste unless there's receptors otherwise you can't rule out that it's some other weird stuff going on with how we our, how we sense tastes um, that missing piece has sort of been filled in with this research they've they've found the the protein called otop1. Max, mm. this is the same protein that forms channels in cell mem- membranes that lets us taste acid, also known as sour, in our five tastes that we formally recognize, maybe six. So these OTOP, these protein uh, uh, channels, uh, are what lets us taste sour. And so they looked into whether it may be the same thing that lets us taste ammonium chloride. And they did a couple of experiments. One, they gave a, a set of mice... They didn't touch them. They let them have the OTOP1 protein like we do. In the others, they took that protein out of them. And then they presented those mice with either water that had ammonium chloride in it, which tastes a bit crap, and ammonium uh, water that doesn't have ammonium chloride in it. The, the mice with the protein, the OTOP1 protein that we have as well, that they think may, may have been the one that lets us taste ammonium chloride, they didn't like drinking from that water that mm. had the ammonium chloride in it. They just liked to drink from the normal water. The ones that didn't have that protein didn't care which water they drank from. Um, which was pretty nice conclusive evidence and one piece of a several several experiments they did to confirm that they're pretty sure that this protein is the key, um, which hints also at why humans may have this ability, that one they did with the mice, um, to taste ammonium chloride. It lets us know when something we're eating or drinking is full of ammonium, which is something that it's useful to know from an evolutionary standpoint and is why we and so many other animals like us seem to have this ability to sense it or at least have this protein um, which which implies that they can sense it and it's you know it's something that we pee out a lot of to get rid from our body so it's not something you want to be taking in lots of in whatever you're drinking or eating Um, so that's that's ammonium chloride the potential sixth taste that we have it might be a little while though before we can officially call it the sixth taste because the last time a new taste got formally adopted was umami in the 80s it was first proposed as a as a taste in the early 1900s it took eight decades for it to be formally recognized as a a official taste of human so we might be waiting a little while before we can call ammonium chloride number six but that's the latest taste that humans have for my weird science what do you got max i've got uh, do you remember the hydrogen games at all the hydrogen games yeah have you heard of that before did you miss it what is the hydrogen games? I'm actually talking about the 2020 Tokyo Olympics. Oh. Yeah, they nicknamed it the hydrogen games. But as we know, it got postponed by COVID. Mm. And therefore, supply chains dried up. And the grand vision for powering the Tokyo Olympics purely on green hydrogen basically went out the window. <laughs> the vision was to have the Olympic Village completely powered using green hydrogen. along with the entire fleet of service vehicles that would ferry competitors and staff to and from the village, they were going to be powered by hydrogen fuel cells. So Toyota got tapped on the shoulder and they got an order from Tokyo Olympic Committee to build 100 buses and 500 cars with their um, hydrogen fuel technology. Wow. But as we know, the show was delayed. (laughs) So, Just a little bit, yeah. So none of this transpired at all. Do you know how many gold we got at Australia One at the, uh, the Tokyo at the Tokyo I'm Olympics? Guess twenty odd. Yeah, you close seventeen. There you go. Yeah. Anyway, and this was Toyota's time to shine and show off their new hydrogen-powered vehicles. But as we know, the games were delayed by a year, and by that stage, the world had moved on, and so it would seem Toyota. 
the second largest automaker in the world. Do you know what the number one automaker is in the world? It's VW, isn't it? It is indeed. Yeah, they took over. Toyota used to be. Uh, I think back in, when the Tokyo Olympics was on, I think they were number one. Anyway, the one-time darling of environmentalists for essentially making hybrid vehicles mainstream, Toyota has faced sharp criticism lately for fence-sitting when it comes to EVs, including lobbying against stricter emission rules and other measures designed to spur global adoption of EVs. In Toyota's defence, the automaker argues that hybrids and plug-in hybrids can still play an important role in CO2 reduction and the transition to electrification, especially while the charging infrastructure for EVs is still in in its infancy. Toyota, along with BMW insists that many global markets and customers it serves, including developing nations, will take much longer to adopt electric vehicles. Furthermore, supplies of lithium and other materials remain too scarce and expensive to support a full and immediate electric vehicle takeover. Last week, Toyota teased its next big leap when it comes to EVs, the adoption of solid-state batteries. Toyota claims it can deliver solid-state-powered cars to market by 2027-2028 with the promise of robust range, safe and reliable performance and lightning fast charging. Toyota is targeting a 1,000 kilometre range and an 80% charge in just 10 minutes. So what's so good about solid state batteries, Gabe? I've got seven points here. Seven? Yeah. Go on. They've got a low profile, which Mm -hmm. means the cars can be designed with a lower roof line and therefore a better drag coefficient, which is essential for extending an EV's range. There's no liquid electrolyte to slosh around and potentially become a fire hazard. They have faster charge times using direct current, also a better battery life, which means a longer lifespan, higher energy density, a better temperature operating range, and finally, a more environmentally friendly battery chemistry. And that is my weird science, even though it wasn't that weird. But it is weird that Toyota is sort of (laughs) doesn't know what they're up to. So take that with a grain of salt, they said, because Toyota keeps changing their mind. We know that uh, ICE vehicles, internal combustion engine vehicles, are going to be banned by 2035 in Europe. So Mm. Toyota will be looking at that pretty seriously. The other people to look at will be Honda. Honda is really big on the solid state batteries as well. And that is it. Mm. You tune into Four Triple Z, and the show is No Idea with me, Max, and the Master Gabe. And hopefully, we'll be joined by Izzy very shortly. We're going to hear from our friendly marine scientist, Peter, with a story. We're trying to get Gabe back online, but he's <laughs> having a bit of trouble there. Will I play the story, Gabe? Thumbs up? Got nothing. Okay, let's do it. Right now, many marine scientists are bracing for what is likely to be the massive impact of this year's El Nino on the Great Barrier Reef. The warm weather and clear skies is highly likely to induce havoc all over the reef, with many expecting a repeat of some of our worst bleaching years. But we've also known for a while now that the impacts of climate change are far from the reef's only worries. One of the very serious threats to the reef is, in actuality, water quality. Which might sound strange, as when you think of our Great Barrier, you likely think of crystal clear aqua water shimmering over a heart-shaped reef. I mean, it's what's on all the pictures. But what isn't always clear is that it's about more than just being clear. When we talk about water quality, we're actually discussing a range of things, including the murkiness or turbidity, but more so the oxygen and nutrient levels that are the cause of it and the base of the ecosystem. Coral reefs are actually quite funny things because despite being a hustling hub of life, they prefer extremely nutrient-poor waters. They're often called the oasis in the desert. That's not to say they don't need anything, they just recycle what they have really, really well. And there's a very good reason they don't want too much. You see, one of the things that really loves nutrients is algae. It needs things like nitrogen and phosphorus to be able to photosynthesize and grow. And although you do want some algae on a reef, algae by and large grows a lot faster than coral and when there's enough phosphorus and nitrogen to let them grow that fast, they can shade out corals from the sunlight that they also need. So 
Too much nutrient can lead to losses in the coverage and variety of corals, but it can also negatively impact the health and coverage of critically linked seagrasses by microalgae and larvae, including the murkiness of the water and also shading them out. And on top of this, it has also been found to increase the successful breeding of the crown of thorns starfish. So not very good for our pretty little heart reef all up. Of course, this has been known for some time now and the sources of nutrient pollution have started to be researched and understood. We know some of it comes from river discharge, which now carries four times more nutrients to the reef than it did in pre-industrial times. We also know that this is largely due to land clearing and certain agricultural practices, which is obviously important to know if you want to try and prevent it. But up until recently, we couldn't find where a pretty significant chunk of this pollution was coming from. And it turns out that it's groundwater, as in the water stored in the soil and rock beneath us. Which I guess isn't surprising because we've always known that coastal groundwater interflows with the ocean, but what is still surprising is the sheer volume. The researchers from Southern Cross University found that the groundwater discharge accounted for 10 to 15 times more pollution than that of rivers. Specifically, about one third of new nitrogen and two thirds of phosphorus inputs come from groundwater. Now, of course, this varies by location, but the main takeaway is that it's just a lot of pollution and it really impacts how we manage this threat. Because where before we were understandably most worried about land use near rivers, now we know all aquifer adjacent land must be brought into this as well. And of course, all of this means nothing if we don't actually put in the hard work of changing behaviours to fix pollution. Especially because all of this pollution makes the reef less resilient to the effects of climate change, which we all know are getting larger every day. You tune into 4ZZZ, and the show is No Idea, with me, Max, the master. And welcome, Izzy. Hello. You made it, eventually? Yep. Survived last week with the Jizzy episode, the and now Jizzy we're back. Episode, yes. RPJ. Doubling he's not, down. He's no. not dead, he's just not here. <laughs> Doing assignments. Yeah. Let's do a bit of this. Would you rather do 16 weeks of antidepressants yes. or 16 weeks of running? Running. Oh. Yeah. yeah. So, uh, well, for 141 participants from the Amsterdam University of Netherlands asked this question, mm-hmm. and hopefully with their QS ranking of... 86. 80, we got 86. We got... 71. 71. Nah, 53. Oh, I'm closer. Yeah, you'd think they'd have an answer. <laughs> <laughs> Those participants were all people who were diagnosed with depression or anxiety. And of the group of 45, uh, of the group of 141, 45 of them chose antidepressants, whilst 96 chose running. For the running group, yeah. Mm. Yeah, I was Mm. surprised as well. Mm. But it gets really funny. Mm. For the running group, um, they had to make major lifestyle changes to accommodate their new hobby. So like making personal goals, doing Mm. running. New shoes. New shoes, exactly. New gear. (laughs) Finding a a running app. (laughs) Um, but they did it in group sessions over um, 16 weeks, three 45-minute mm. intensive sessions. Mm. Um, whilst the group that chose um, antidepressants, they had to take Lexapro, yeah. um, which is just pretty standard SSRI, yeah. for 16 weeks. Now, um, see, the difference here already mm-hmm. is that were they running in groups or were they yes. running individually? In group sessions. Yeah, because the power of the group antidepressants in groups. Yeah, that's what I was saying. Yeah, Yeah. like it does. These don't equate to me necessarily, Mm. because you you saw you'd have to all take your medication in a group together. Yeah, (laughs) 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 Um, well, they were well, they were um, investigating because previous studies had highlighted that um, there was a comparable, the uh, benefits of running, um, the physical benefits of running was, um, the mental benefits, sorry, was similar to taking antidepressants, Mm -hmm. but they wanted to look at the physical, the way it affected your physical health. And there was a clear divide, obviously, Mm. running versus taking a pill is going to, yeah, is going to engage (laughs) different muscles. but the uh. adherence to the protocol was lower in the running group at mm. about 52% than the antidepressant group, which was about 82%, ah. despite the initial prevalence for running over antidepressants. So the, that's when the data got a little bit spotty as people mm. were dropping mm. out over the 16 weeks. Yeah. So yeah. like, oh, I can't make it. Yeah. Um, <laughs> it's a bit like this show. <laughs> 
Hey, oi, oi. <laughs> so they found that over the 16-week period of, which is about 3.6 months, mm. um, running did score higher on physical health improvements, which mm. like no brainer. no no right now yeah yeah um whilst antidepressants did lead to a slightly worse physical condition mm. which duh yeah. um dr brennan uh Penix from the university of amsterdam said the study showed that a lot of people like the idea of exercising but it can mm. be difficult obviously to carry this through mm. even though the benefits are significant we found that most people were compliant in taking antidepressants whilst half the running group adhered to the two times a week um exercise therapy telling patients to go run is not enough for your physical, only half of them did it. Yeah, yeah. and then Whereas and then it, the yeah, people did it. So you you have a gym membership, don't you, Kay? Yeah. And do you do you, do you I think do you about it? going a lot more than I go? Yes, that's where, you're going. <laughs> that's where I'm going. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think I go. I think I go. Like ideally, what my what I my schedule is is three times a week. I think I probably average one. Very realistic. Between one and a half to two times a week. Right. So Even that. Half that. Yeah. Two times a week Which, is... Mm, what's it's it? all right, but it's still... I'm still... It's not what you imagine it. And what? it's not what you sort of justify yeah. to yourself and expect the benefits from. And what's the idea of getting the gym membership over just going outside and going for a run or bike ride or something like that? I don't like running very much. <laughs> okay. Like the Amsterdam people. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> I started on... Oh, yeah. 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 I, I still... Yeah. I've never experienced this runner's high crap. I don't know what don't, that is. That's something I need <laughs> it's to look into. It's called a stitch. No, no, no. It's like... Where it's enjoyable. And I've and seen videos of people reaching a runner's air, high. You don't feel it. <laughs> see yeah, people sorry, reach. No, 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 no. See yeah. people reach the so-called runner's high. I'm yeah. like, okay. <laughs> Do you also know what a corgasm is? Because <laughs> that's also very real. Um, yeah, I started. <laughs> yeah, no. Um, started going to the gym as well. And man, yeah. it's it's like a big monkey gym. Yeah. It's just like I'm an yeah. adult. I can just pick up 150 kilogram weight because I can. Will it do damage to my bo- body? Yeah, Probably. Yeah, yeah, but yeah, you know, yeah, exactly. It's the idea yeah. of free will. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. Easy. Okay. They can do it. You tune into Four Triple Z, and the show is no idea with me, Max, Izzy, and Gabe, and we're getting a few texts in, especially from Chris. And Chris is talking, just following on from your weird science, Izzy. Mm-hmm. I like the UK study comparing Lexapro with magic mushrooms. <laughs> Early trends were favouring or positive towards magic mushrooms. Ooh. So there you go. Oh four two zero six two six seven three three is our number if you want to text in at any time, request exactly. a song, or have a chat with us. Whatever you want to do. Exactly. You tune into Four Triple Z, and the show is no idea with me, Max, Izzy. Mm. Well, not for much longer, I guess. And yes. Gabe. <laughs> it's time for a bit of this. Okay, it's time for the best part of the show. Loosely defined as science, yeah, you already know. Everybody listens to you for Triple Z just to hear us talking about what Butters just did. Subscriptions just keep rolling like the tires on a car. But something tells me that our science careers won't go far. But unlike an engine, I won't keep you in suspension. We're all here to hear him talk, so let's give him attention. You're not ready for when he starts rapping. Gonna hand the mic to Max, and I'm not talking bandstanding. It's lights out, and away we go. Take it away, Max. Bathurst. What do you got? 1,000. Did you watch any of that on the weekend? Of the Bathurst? Yeah. I saw something from it. I didn't see anything of the racing. I did see something, a cool video, and I've completely forgotten what it was. It happened last Sunday. Yeah. SVG won in his Camaro with with fellow Kiwi co-driver Richie Stanaway. The GM Chevrolet Camaros have won most supercar races this year, and the Ford Mustang teams have been trying to get some changes to even up the parity between the cars. Fords were clearly slower on the Bathurst weekend. Mooted aerodynamic adjustments to the Mustangs were knocked back ahead of the big race, prompting a strong response just hours before practice began at the famed Mount Panorama circuit on Thursday. In a rare show of unity, all four teams, led by Shell V-Power, Walkinshaw, Andretti United and Tickford came together to issue a joint statement last Thursday about what they deemed a lack of parity with their Chevrolet rivals. They stated, The independent data shows that the Mustang will be at a continued disadvantage for the biggest race of the year, which we believe is unacceptable and not for what our... uh, and not what our sport is built upon. 
So uh, clearly some changes will need to be made in the not too distant future. You got any opinion on this, Gabe? None, none whatsoever. None. Izzy, any opinion on this? Nope. About parity. So, yeah, a Mustang did come in third, but that was only because one of the 888 cars fell over, which was a Camaro or would have been a Camaro clean sweep on the podium. Hmm. It's always been a bit weird, hasn't it, with the, yeah. the way that the brands engage in the supercars? Like, yeah. for, for a long time, it's, it, it was Holden and Ford, and they, they let others race, but if, if they ever started doing consistently well, people started getting annoyed because it's all meant to be Holden versus Ford, and yeah. then it's now you know, changed with the brands, but it's still yeah. the same sort of rivalry. It is. It's, it's always just been a bit odd about how the brands get treated and, and sort of mm. it's not, yeah, with the, with the lower brands that aren't those, two, those top two, they're yeah. not really expected to win ever. <laughs> No one really <laughs> wants them to win, yeah, ever, right. except for the people driving them. That's right. And uh, yeah, it's I don't know. You, you gotta let just if someone's made a better car, let them win more. Isn't that how how it should go in supercars? Like Formula One. Like Formula One. Yeah, maybe. Actually, that mm. would get pretty boring pretty quickly. Yeah, wouldn't it? Yeah. SVG, can I talk about him? Of course. Go crazy. Come next year, Bathurst will not be on Shane Van Gisbergen's list. Because he is moving to the United States to compete in NASCAR full-time. So NASCAR basically has a race every weekend, an appealing proposition for a driver who has already proved himself in NASCAR by winning in Chicago on debut. Interestingly, though, even with the experience he has with the Gen 3 V8 supercars that are closely aligned with the Gen 3 NASCAR vehicles, SVG still has to get certification to drive on their high-speed oval circuits. Oh, really? You need a little license? Yeah. Go around, 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 around. Yeah, oval license. He'll need yeah, to oval license. <laughs> <laughs> he will need to compete a season <laughs> driving in the truck series before no. being Whoa. allowed on the ovals in NASCAR. Seriously? Yeah, yeah. In the truck series. You have wow. to drive a, a ute around. Yeah, ute. For a season before you're yeah. allowed in NASCAR. Well, I'm thinking it's a season. It could be fewer races than that. A couple races. He is also allowed, but he is, he is allowed to drive on the flat road circuits. So, what? Yeah. So he's allowed to run some of the, like, like Chicago was a road circuit, right? Yeah. That was actually a street but circuit, but yeah. If, if, if you got told, Max, you have to mm. go race pace in a NASCAR thing and you can either go in really narrow street circuits or a massive oval with a banking to help you turn around. Yeah, well. It. Yeah, no, I'm not making the rules here. This is NASCAR. <laughs> Shoot the messenger, Jesus. What else you got? I can't wait to report on NASCAR next year. Every week, there'll be a NASCAR report. How yes. good is that? SDG and while we're on that topic, AJ or Ming Dinger, nicknamed the Dinger, won last weekend at the Charlotte Motor Speedway Road Circuit. So SVG will be allowed to enter that race. AJ is running 21st in this year's championship. Standings while William Byron is the person to beat. And we are in the middle of what they call the playoffs. So they try and give it like a football analogy. And the playoffs consist of 10 races, starting with 16 drivers. The first nine races are broken up into three rounds with three races apiece, with winners automatically advancing to the next round. Four drivers will be eliminated after the third, sixth, and ninth races. You're keeping up with this? Leaving a final four to battle for the championship on November 5 at Phoenix Raceway. Not sure how all this works, but clearly I have some work to do before I start talking about NASCAR, NASCAR next sport, year. Isn't it? <laughs> it's a thing it is. We're going to have the SVG report next year, that's for sure. Okay, mm. the main game. Let's do it. F1. It's done. The 2023 season is technically over now. With Woo. Max Verstappen winning the Drivers' Championship and his Red Bull team already winning the Constructors' Championship. But the big news from last weekend was, of course, Aussie Oscar Piastri mm. winning the mm-hmm. sprint on the Saturday and coming second in Sunday's feature race. Let's go! <laughs> prediction. I've got a prediction. We've got, yep. we've got five races to go. Not, not that they count for anything, really. Yeah. Um, Oscar, I reckon he'll win a race this year. I, I hope so. Gabe, I hope so. You in on that one? Oscar Piastri yeah. now, this year. Well, if yeah. Max crashes, then sure. <laughs> 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 He'll gift him one, you reckon. And in some maybe, breaking maybe Formula too. 1 news, yeah. the tyre supplier, Pirelli, mm-hmm. will remain in F1 until 2027. Ooh. Finally, the Valtteri Bottas and Roman Grosjean report. Valtteri finished 8th on Sunday, driving his Alfa Romeo-sponsored F1 car, while the Phoenix was there in person to witness it. 
And that is it that, um, for the report this week. Okay. That, that, that thing with the Pirelli being extended is interesting after last weekend because it was a, a weird one for tyres. If you watch F1, mm. you'll know they mm-hmm. give them a set of three different softnesses to choose from <laughs> throughout the weekend. They get a set number per team, so different yeah. teams can't pay for more and get advantages, whatever. Mm. And I think it's some weird sustainability thing too. Uh, but but they, they did something which I have never seen them do before. I'm mm. sure they have done it before, but it was a brand new track that they'd laid down at, in Qatar. Yes. Qatar, right? Mm-hmm, Where it was. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. The brand new tarmac. So there's no rubber laid down. When the cars go around it, they put down rubber from the tyres and it gradually just built up this little road of rubber that they can drive on on the racing line and they they didn't have any support races it was brand new stuff so there was no rubber on the track which meant that the tires were getting wrecked really quickly and for safety reasons during the race they did something where they said you're not allowed to race on a single set of tires for more than 18 laps at a time yeah it was that unusual okay which which completely changed the whole idea because you're meant to be guessing about when they're going to come in and and yes so they had a maximum uh they had a prescribed amount yes they all had to come in three times i think at least to get to the end of the race because the tires they were that pirelli were concerned the tires would fall off the cars they'd break and all apart, as has happened before a few years mm-hmm. ago, famously to, to the two Mercedes cars in the same race, their tyres fell to bits yes. and it put a bit of an obstacle in the yes. race for the other drivers. Um, so they had to change it. And so it'll be yeah, interesting to see if they keep that up for the next few years, if they've got the contract to 2027. Well, they're already working on the new compound. I think they even introduced the 2024 compound six months earlier than mm. they were planning to because of this problem. So clearly they haven't solved it at all. Oh well. You're tuning into 4ZZZ and the show is No Idea with me, Max, Gabe and Izzy. And we're going to go over to the Savannah. Is that right? Or the Savannah. Savannah. If you pronounce it correctly, Max. Did you see that? Oh, here we go. Because yeah. what I'm about to play for you is apparently the sound of the scariest animal in the South African savanna. Mm. Uh, but I'm going to make you wait even longer because an international group of researchers has just finished a study of over 4,000 trials. They had like 15,000 recordings of those. They got like 4,000 usable ones, I think, where they played the sounds of different predators at different animals in the savannah. Mm. Um, as in they'd put speakers up on a tree or a post or somewhere and play the sounds of different predators when animals walked by to see what would happen. Just, I don't really get how you get ethics permission to do stuff like this because we're talking like they had giraffes walking by, warthogs, impala and rhino and zebra and leopards and hyenas and buffaloes and hippos and, and elephants and all sorts of species. And they all just like walk by a speaker and then they blare a dangerous predator out of the speaker, out of the speaker at that animal just to see what it does, just for the fun. Just right. in, invoke terror into these African animals mm. <laughs> to see oh what happens. Uh, one of them, like in one of them, there's a leopard that's walking up to the camera. They play the sound of this predator, what they call the super predator, and it's it's like dragging and uh, I think an impala, some prey with it as it's walking oh, towards yeah. the ca- uh, the camera, yeah. um, which has the, the speaker next to it as well. And then they just blare the sound of the predator, and it bolts away and ditches its. It ditches the prey it's just caught. Like really? uh, they, they did this is like proper yeah. like interacting with the wild and changing how things were acting to see to see how people or how how these animals reacted to to sounds. Um, but would you let, now like to hear the sound of a zebra uh, reacting to this super predator? The research found <laughs> the, it's the scariest <laughs> predator in the savannah according yeah. to this research. You ready? Yes. What you're going to hear is hopefully some background noise at the start. It's pretty soft. There's zebras at a water hole, a couple of them, and then you're going to hear the sound of the predator. And as that predator sound is playing, you should hear the splashing of the zebras reacting to it. I don't know that I started loving the law. I think there were things that I felt very strongly about. <laughs> the most terrifying sound they played at any animal a human. by was the sound of a talking human. Yeah. Oh, uh, I was like... <laughs> Nice. I thought it was Margaret Thatcher for a yeah, minute. I, I was like, that's that. the ultimate yeah. enemy. Has Gabe completely lost it? <laughs> <laughs> Would you like to hear the sound of that leopard I mentioned before? Mm-hmm. Approaching the camera. You can hear it dragging the prey real yeah. close to this speaker. And then someone just starts talking and it bolts. It's gone. It's off screen. It's completely bolted. Oh, really? That's amazing. Wow. That sound yeah. of a voice made these animals just like turn and run pretty much on the spot. Um, and it was just like humans speaking at normal conversational volumes in I think four different languages. Um, and on average, 
they were twice as likely to run away from the human voice as they were to run away from the growls of and, a lion or something. And, yep. Yeah, really? <laughs> <And> sounds <laughs> okay. of a lion. Yeah, <laughs> yep. exactly well, it's right. it's their fault because uh, they can't talk, like, isn't it? Yeah, well, well, they actually pulled up sounds of lions that they were equivalent to the lions talking to each other. Oh, yeah. Like these okay. little growlings and snarls yeah, yeah, yeah. and things, not roars. Yeah. Oh, I'll go left, you go right. For that sort of stuff, yeah. Yeah, yeah that sort of stuff. Yeah. And so <laughs> 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 everything the lion touches is yours. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but it meant, like, it wasn't just zebras and warthogs, we're also talking giraffes and hippos and buffaloes are probably more scared of you talking than a lion. Do you want to hear a giraffe? Yes. I go crazy. Three giraffes. Yeah. My dad was a teacher, so I grew up in a home that the only thing I knew was sports. So I played tennis, I played cricket. You can just hear the giraffe bolting. absolutely crapping itself yeah. and bolting yeah. as the, just the sound Amazing. of a guy talking comes over. Yeah. Um, the, the wildlife also ran 40% faster on average when running away from a human voice <laughs> from a lion's growls. Not just more likely to run away, but they run faster. And of the 19 species they tested, there are only two that weren't more likely to run from the sound of humans than the sound of lions. You want to get, give a stab at which, which they're pretty well known, like African savanna mammals. Mm-hmm. Two of them ran more from lions than humans. Hyenas? No. Don't know. <laughs> Sorry. Big. Talking big elephants. Elephants. Oh, okay. Yeah. And the other ones were African wild dogs. Um, oh, really? Whoa. Okay. Yeah, they were the only two that uh, that ran away from lions more than humans. To be fair, they did run away from humans a lot. I think it might just be, particularly for the elephants, they're more scared. They're, they're, they're scared of, of humans, but they're just even more scared of lions because of, that's probably one of their only actual predators in the wild. Um, you know, humans and lions, that's it. Whereas mm. the others have a whole bunch of different predators. Um, but this is... <laughs> the elephants really didn't like the lion sounds. What I'm going to play you now yeah. is the sound of an elephant at nighttime yeah. just really casually walking along and then they just... To smack it with uh, oh, the sound cool. of a lion growling within like a few meters of where it's standing. And this is what happened. There's the lion. Yeah. Gee, that is the okay. sound of the elephant, elephant completely taking out the entire microphone. <laughs> <Whoa>! <laughs> It did not like it at all. Um, But yeah, I mean, I I find this really cool as a start because it means that we're pretty terrifying. Um, It also, it felt like a good thing initially when I was reading through this because it's like, okay, that means these animals are scared of humans, which is good because it means they're more likely to avoid humans, particularly if it's going to be an unsavory interaction between that animal and a human. They Researchers were a little um, concerned about it though because... There, they said there is this idea that animals are going to habituate to humans, particularly in like a tourism setup. Mm. They're going to get used to humans being around so yeah. that it's not going to impact them that much. They're saying a lot of these animals have humans around them a decent amount. And if they're that scared of just the sound of a human voice near them still, they're mm-hmm. clearly very scared of humans. So yeah. they're going to be changing their behavior when humans are around. So they're saying we need to be a lot more conscious and not just assume that animals are going to get used to us. They're going to be pretty scared too because they tested four different sounds. They tested lions. They tested human voices. They tested gunshots and they tested <laughs> hunting dogs. What the? Uh, what yeah. The? And the human voice was Still the thing one. they were scared of the really? most. Uh, oh. So they're pretty concerned about what that means for how you know tourism operations work and mm. how people interacting with this wildlife is going to work if they're always scared of humans and more and more humans are going into these areas. Mm. Um, but it does mean if you want to give Pumba a run for his money, clearing out the savannah after every meal, you just need to start talking, Max. Oh! Oh! <laughs> got the fire extinguisher. Someone just got burned. <laughs> Everyone at the station knows... Uh, which shows the most appreciated. Uncancelable. Uncancelable. That's what I love to say about us. <laughs> everything we do, everything we say, everything we've ever put online, uncancelable. Yeah. Uncancelable. I have to download something. Gabe, you've done it for me. I just got to find it. I've got to load it in. <laughs> it is live commentary. You tuned into a set. And the show has no idea. From- B and J from mm-hmm. two years ago this month 
October 27th, 2021, <laughs> which I just, I, I found this one when I was doing my story for this week on the, the different sounds, the predator sounds and how mm. humans were the most terrifying thing uh, in the South African savannah that they played at them. But they also played some lions and elephants. They didn't like that. And it reminded me of this story. Went back, found it, happened to be two years ago, pretty much to the day or to a few weeks away at least. And it's a story from V&J on how elephant tusks have been changing in response v, to it's so nope. frustrating. <laughs> Sorry. V, it's so frustrating how some of the coolest concepts in science are ones that are really hard to actually see happen in real life. What do you mean? Uh, you know, like quantum physics, which is super hard to observe directly, or evolution, which happens over such a massive amount of time that we can really only see what's come before, not what changes are happening right now. Well, hold on. That's straight up untrue. We get to see evolution happening around us all the time. Tell me something. How much do you know about elephant hunting in Mozambique? Uh, well, I know that during the Mozambican Civil War, elephants were hunted as a source of food and ivory. That was from 1977 to 1992. It caused a massive drop in African savannah elephant numbers in the national park. There was over a 90% decrease in the population from what I remember. Yep. The ivory of elephants' tusks makes them valuable to hunters, which has driven their numbers drastically down. But if there's anything life has proven to us over and over again, it's that it finds a way. So, is this going where I think it is? Are elephants evolving to escape the ivory trade by simply not being a source of ivory anymore? That's pretty much exactly it. As elephant numbers plummeted over the two decades of civil war, New research has shown that the population of tuskless females increased from 18% to a stunning 51%. Is it only the females that end up tuskless? Yep. The mutations that turn the elephants tuskless are X-linked. That means that they're carried on the sex chromosome of female elephants, and thus they present differently in male and female offspring. These mutations happen to be male lethal, meaning that when they're passed onto elephants with XY chromosomes, the pregnancy often ends in a miscarriage. That's so interesting. I wonder what it means for the elephant population if over half the females are tuskless, but all the males have tusks. Does that mean that the males are poached more often? And if so, does it run the risk of ending up with all female populations of elephants that can't breed? Those are the big questions. And, uh... I don't really know the answers, but the research has certainly raised other concerns for what a tuskless elephant population could mean not only for the elephants, but for the environment around them as well. They state that elephant tusks are crucial for the ecosystem. Elephants often use their tusks to excavate food and minerals, so their tusks are super vital for their diet. Secondly. Elephants use tusks to peel bark and kill trees, which can turn whole forests into grasslands. While this may not seem like a great thing at first, the ability of elephants to transform a habitat brings whole new levels of biodiversity to local spaces. Basically, the researchers are worried that elephants losing their tusks could make it harder for them to eat and make the ecosystem more stagnant. I had no idea a single body part of an animal could have such a profound impact on entire ecosystems. It's really amazing to me just how intricate the world around us is and how just the smallest changes can have massive ramifications. I know I started this off talking about how I wished concepts like evolution were more easily observable, but actually this has just made me sad maybe the fact that some concepts in science play out over hundreds of years or on scales we can't observe is for the best the second humans start getting involved in speeding things up and making things bigger the worse it seems to end up for all of us you do have a point but i don't want this story to end on such a miserable note it's important to understand that concerted conservation efforts led by local peoples are absolutely imperative for instance, anti-poaching laws have been tightened, as well as increased enforcement of them on the ground by both government and community groups. From a habitat loss angle, we've also seen important legislative reform regarding land use planning that emphasises animal-human coexistence. Because of these changes, a number of elephant subpopulations are stable and even thriving in carefully managed conservation areas in countries like Gabon and the Republic of the Congo. 
I think it's really important not to get bogged down in doomerism and keep trying to pressure governments to do the right thing, because the right policies can prove instrumental in securing a future for our wildlife. You tune into 4ZZZ, and the show has no idea. Your weekly dose of science with me, Max, Izzy, and the Master Gabe. And it's time for this No Idea Space News. You ready for some space news? Thank you. Spain has joined the space race with their first successful suborbital launch. PLD, PLD Space launched its reusable Mira 1 rocket early on Saturday before landing as planned in the Atlantic Ocean. Mira, named after a breed of fighting bull, flew to a height of 46 kilometres during a five-minute flight. The Mira 1 rocket, a prototype of future satellite launcher, is as tall as a three-storey building and is capable of carrying 100 kilo of cargo. The ISS has had another coolant link, and yes, it involves the Russians. With the, with the Spanish thing, Max, yeah. it seems a bit... Is it too late to join the space race? Is there a limit to when you're allowed to start? Like, you know, they're, they're getting into suborbital orbit for the first time. Hmm. Meanwhile, SpaceX is at its, I don't know, 5,000... <laughs> yeah. right. ISS is, yeah, is yeah. about to get retired. You think the race is over. They're going to Mars, they're going to the moon, you hmm. know, like... Is is the yeah is the race well is it too late to start the race? It kind of feels like a a, a local business just joining Facebook for the first time now. <laughs> get on social oh, media, you know what I mean? That's cruel. Let's get back to this currently. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Apparently, uh, one of the uh, radiators on the NACA um, module, which actually means science, so that's appropriate for this show, uh, or the multi-purpose labor- laboratory module upgrade MLM. And it was launched back in 2021. One of its outside radiators, its secondary radiator, got hit and is now leaking coolant. NASA got a bit concerned, asked the astronauts, is everyone okay? They said yes. So the primary radiator on Nauka is working normally, so that's providing full cool- cooling to the module. So that's all good. So space station operations continue as normal, except that the US segment, they want their windows uh closed i mean i'm assuming they're closed but i must be there's some sort of another protection that they can put on there to stop any uh, contamination coming in ah this is the third it's not a bickering between the us and the russians (laughs) you built too close (laughs) (laughs) it's the third coolant link this year so well done russia now an faa report on low earth orbit constellations this report was presented to Congress, and it states in an excerpt, by 2035, if the expected large constellation growth is realised and debris from such satellites survive re-entry, the total number of hazardous fragments surviving re-entries each year is expected to reach 28,000. And the causality expectation, the number of individuals on the ground predicted to be injured or killed by debris surviving the re-entries of satellites being disposed from these constellations would be 0.6 per year. Wow, really? Yeah. They really went that far to quantify it. Like yeah. Like kill a person every two years. That's it. That's what they arrived at. And what they're more worried about is if it hits an aircraft because they reckon Ooh. it will take down an aircraft. Wow. So, yeah. That's nuts. Yeah, I know. I don't think I've heard anything like that before about quantifying that. I'd I'd read some stuff earlier, Max, that I want to bring up on the show properly in the future, but about if you have a right to a clear sky, like do humans have have some sort of fundamental right? Because the light from these things will block out stars eventually. Mm. Um, And so there's all this like debate on like, is that a thing? Should should you have some sort of claim on having a clear sky that... Well, I, I, I thought that's what the Webb telescopes for and the Hubble telescope use those ones. Isn't there legislation <laughs> in the US for that? Like the clear sky. Oh, yeah. There's telescopes. <laughs> I more mean a clear sky that I can afford to access without <laughs> through application channels and yeah, look at the James Webb Space Telescope's imagery. That's right. Uh, oh, Jesus. Okay. I've got a content warning for this next story. Mm. Oh. India's latest Vikram lander that successfully landed down at the lunar south pole mm-hmm. is now probably dead. <gasps> India made history what? as the first country oh. to land near the moon's south pole. But several days after they were set to wake up, the Chandra 3 
Moonlander and its sidekick Lunar Rover remain fast asleep. No. <laughs> the robots. What? Went, the robots went to sleep in early September, when night set in on the moon and their batteries drained. The next lunar day started on September 22, and the Indian Space Research Organization, or ISRO, were hoping the two spacecraft, which run on solar power, would reawaken that day as the sun rose on the moon as their solar panels recharged. Unfortunately, the Vikram lander and its rover did not respond to Mission Control's (gasps) message. Additional attempts have been made over the next preceding days, but as nothing's... Shocking. Happened so sad face on Shocking. that. Shocking. Hence the if content If you've been a long time follower of the show, you know, like two years ago, we had this whole segment on the first wow. Vikram lander yes. and it was, it, it landed down and it went MIA and then they found it, but it had like busted some of its legs on entry oh. and they couldn't get the rover out of it because the <laughs> on its door and it was this long running yeah. thing. They finally had to, they finally had to just like give up on the poor Vikram mm. rover and, and, and the whole landing thing. And they got this one, Max. Wasn't they it did. last week? They they successfully yeah. landed yeah. two weeks ago. Yeah. They successfully okay, landed. Yeah, yeah. They were the fourth country to make a successful yes. non-crash landing soft on landing. the moon. <laughs> soft, <laughs> soft landing <laughs> on the moon. Yeah, yeah. Unbelievable. By the the so, yeah. so what? It hasn't charged up or something? Did it definitely get sun? It, it was work. They were working for a few days, but then when the when the um, moon went into you know no sun on it, then yeah, it just they both died. Right. Yeah. So yeah, it didn't allow for it, I guess. Anyway, we had a lot of texts in today. Thank you, everyone. Thanks to Chris. We've got all your texts. Mark. Mark said, fun fact, NASCAR in the Southern Hemisphere runs clockwise. And when US drivers come to the Southern Hemisphere to to, to drive, they struggle to, and they generally end up in the gift shop, he said. (laughs) So, because apparently road circuit, um, in the the States, the ovals, they all run counterclockwise. So, yeah. So maybe that's the thing with SVG. He has to get the training up. He ends up in the gift shop. (laughs) Did he turn yeah, <laughs> That's about all we have time for on the show we today, do. isn't it, Max? We do. Yeah, oh, and yeah. also and Vince as well. We we got, we've uploaded that, have we now? Yeah, yeah for Vince. If it's you on the track Facebook down page, that, that story from earlier in the yeah. show on the antidepressants versus running yeah. for your physical health. Mm. But that is all we have time for on the show this morning. Thanks for tuning in with us. We we'll back on your airwaves next Wednesday, 10 a.m. Mm. to 12 p.m. Mm. 102.1 FM. We're also online fortunepresent.org.au, where you can also find this recording of the today's show as well as the last few shows with all the music in between if you want to catch it on a podcast app you can do that now look for no idea no with a k uh cuts all the music out for copyright reasons but it means you can listen back to us in a nice little neat podcast form and that's about all we have time for so i'm going to say thank you to max and to izzy and peter for your stories this week that's it for no idea this week thanks everyone for listening and we'll speak to you next week it's cool i'm a goddamn marvel of modern science science